But welcome. If you're new here, we've been uh, going through a series called Is Your God Too Small? And we've been looking at different ways that we understand God. And some people view God like this, kind of one of some of the first weeks is God is a God who he holds a radar gun out there and he's looking to catch you when you speed in life in some form. And then he's going to punish you or sends you a, a notice that you something's due and you know that you have to pay that back. But some of you have a different view and a small view of God that says this, that God is actually stingy that he's withdrawing blessings from your life and he's holding them kind of over your head and going, you know what, if you do this, I'm going to bless you. If you don't do it, I'm going to just be stingy with you. And I remind you there, when he looked at that a couple weeks ago, that we have a God who has blessed us in the heavenlies and it should drive us to gratitude and thankfulness and even express blessing out to others in this world. But some of you have a different view of God, and we we talked about this last week, and that God is a distant God, that he's stepped back from us, and he's kind of of ambivalent up there, and he's really not engaged, and you got to kind of really go after him if he's going to come and engage and help us. But I, I can tell you that we have a God who cares, and he knows us, and he knows what we need. But today is is another small view of God. And in many ways, it's kind of the opposite of what we looked at last week. But in doing so, turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we just want to kind of set the stage here from this passage here this morning. Exodus 20, the context is that Moses is is getting the Ten Commandments. So that's kind of the the picture of it. And I want to read you just some verses. And it really, I think, points to in many ways, an understanding of a small God. Look out in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now now ponder this picture that we just read. If Moses were to come up to you this morning, and that we were close by this mountain, and he said, Come with me up the mountain. Let's go see God. How would you respond? Would you go with him? The the, the thunder, the lightning, a a trumpet in the background somewhere, the the mountain is smoking. I, I think most people would be terrified of going up with Moses on that mountain. And there would be a fear that would overcome us. And like this group, we'd want to shrink back. And he asked the question, why? Why would there be a hesitancy to do that? And as I ponder that question, let me put the statement that I think is really the issue. We know that he knows our real hearts. See, he knows us. He knows When I was behind 
a very slow-moving car this last week. And I wasn't praying for their salvation. Okay, get off the road. Has anybody else done that? <laughs> you have real pure thoughts when the driver is going way too slow. But maybe he knows that we've been angry at our spouse or another person at work. Or maybe when we've used words that give death rather than life, we know that he knows that. Or maybe he knows that we're trapped in a job. And you know what? Our attitude toward that work just really stinks. See, he knows us and he sees us when we sulk and we resent and when our emotions run all over the place. He knows when we get angry, when, when we don't feel appreciated at home or by our kids or work or something, somebody else. See, he knows that resentment can get buried deep within the heart. And he even knows when we kind of become a victim to that stuff. See, we know that he knows. He can look at the deepest parts of our heart and in his soul and he sees us. So why would you go up on a mountain with Moses and come face to face God where there's this fearful God and he might just send a fireball our way because of all the things that exist in our heart? You know, as I, I ponder this, I, I believe that there's actually certain groups of people that really like the idea of having priests Matter of fact, let me just reread Exodus 20, 19. It's not on the screen, but listen to this. And he said, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but, not, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. What were they doing? Moses, you stay in between God and us. See, with, with some kind of a priest there, the priest can take the heat the priest can go into the Holy of Holies. Now, there was a legend, it's actually a legend, that the, you know, that the priest used to go in the Holy of Holies and they'd you know, tie a cord on. If he died, they would pull him out. It really, Scripture doesn't say that. And it's probably more legend. But when one comes to Christ, we know that there's things in our heart. And I think there's almost an instinctual knowledge of our unworthiness as we come to know him. And so we cower this idea that God might be really close by. By the way, that comes, where does it come from? The Garden of Eden. If you go back to Genesis 3, they sin and God goes, where are you? What did they do? Shame, fear, and they run and they try to hide from God. See, and I think we try to hide from God as well because I think this, if, if somebody were to peel back the layers of our, our heart, they would see the shame and the fear that we might have and we might feel like a spiritual failure and they might see that. And then this happens. Some preacher comes along and talks about the fear of God. A holy God that gets preached many times wrongly, but... And all of a sudden, there's shame and guilt that's compounded and put on us. And, and, and maybe you were one that grew up in kind of an ultra-fundamentalist church where the focus was, you're so unworthy to be loved by God. And, and maturity for that kind of group of people is you got to stay in this narrow path. And if you fall off the path, you, you better doubt your salvation. 
but see, with the sense of fear and shame and then coupled with him knowing us. There are times we want a God who is small. Let me say it directly for your notes. We want a small God. We want our Heavenly Father to stay uninvolved. God, please don't invite me up to the mountain. Don't, I don't want to go there. I'm not interested in that. See, a small view of God says this, leave me alone. Don't come close. Don't reveal yourself to me. Especially because you know I'm doing spiritually. See, we don't want that kind of fear. You see the difference from last week. It almost connected though. See, there's times in our lives where life is broken and we go, God is distant, and we go, God, come in and rescue me. And then there are times where we're not doing so well and we say, God, don't get involved. Stay away. Stay away. And when you go, what's the root of that? What's what's the root of going, God, I want a faraway God? There's a word, I think, that fits with this. And let me throw it on the screen for you. This is the word, self-reliance. See, we really prefer those times where we have to admit maybe we're not doing well, whatever, but we would rather depend on ourselves for our own lives. And I think self-reliance really is a plague within many Christian people. See, we we don't want to stop and admit how much we withhold and we withdraw from the Father. In this grip, the the most well-used muscles are our hands just closing and going, I'm going to be in control of my own world. Stay away from me, God. Don't, I don't want to go up the mountain. And then there's times I think we do this as well. We want people to think well of us. And so when even there's struggles going on and, and, and we verbalize and go, oh, I want God to come. He needs to come close to me. But on the inside, we're doing this. So it's God verbally, but on the inside, our heart is going, God, stay away. Don't get too close. But let me give you an example of being deeply self-reliant. As I I pondered it this week and go, what would be an example? And and God took me back to an event about 10, 15 years ago. A young woman came in my office and the the church I was at, I did a lot of the weddings and this young girl had attended for a a number of months and she wanted to get married. And one of the things that I do is I invite them in. I want to meet with them before I would say yes on a wedding. And, And they come in, they sit down in my office and, and I, one of the questions I ask, where are you at in your spiritual journey? And I just want to see what's taking place in their heart and their lives. And this woman had actually graduated from Crown Bible College. And within about 10 minutes, it was clear that she had a faith in God. It was real. And within about 10 minutes or so for him, it was clear he had no faith. He, 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 there was, his idea was, I could just do enough good things and it was going to earn my way to heaven. 
And, and so what I had to do is I invited him to step out of the room for a second, and I can just picture it. I can, I can see it in my mind because it was so vivid. This young woman was sitting across the desk from me, and, and as soon as he walked through the door and closed the door, and her head just went oh, like this. And she knew. She knew what the issue was that she was marrying a man in complete violation of being unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And she had no intention of inviting God to become close in that relationship during the pursuit of this man. She, uh, she did choose to go elsewhere for the marriage. But, but do you understand for her what the deeper issue was? The surface issue was just marrying the man in complete disobedience of what the scriptures teach. The deeper issue was fundamentally about her self-reliance. See, she didn't really want God to come up close and be in a close relationship. She believed that he would change, that matter of fact, that she could change him. There was this kind of hope in her heart that goes, yeah, if I just do the right things, he's going to change. And he'll see the light someday. And, and still just violate the mandate of Scripture. Now, a lot of people over the years of groups and college ministers, they struggle when I use this kind of illustration. But, but see, the issue wasn't just that marrying an unbeliever, it was her self-reliance. Um, I, I had a young man, a young woman, where she didn't have a faith, and, and uh, I, I talked to men actually into waiting, and God worked, and it, she came to faith in about six, seven months after the fact, after they came into my office. But I have to also say this, it changed the way of how I talked to my kids. You understand? It, because this issue was ran so deep, and it impacted so many people. I, you know, for my children, I said, Andy, Bethany, we, we had long conversations that don't ever consider getting even close to somebody who's not walking with Christ. If they don't have a, go, a relationship with Christ, man, don't, sure don't bring them home with any tent about heading toward a deeper relationship. And, and by the way, if you're a parent, you need to have conversations with your children on this issue. And not when they're 13, 14, and 15. You've got to start 9, 10 these years. And as I was thinking through this issue, I don't know if you realize Lakewood was a big, a big church at the time. We actually had a class of women who got together to pray for their husbands and to figure out how to live according to 1 Peter 3 and walk in such a way that was obedient to God. And there'd be 10, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 women in that class. And I talked to so many of them, and over and over again, the discouraging factor of, do, of, of some of the situations they were in. But see, the fact remains, we love to be in self-control and self-reliant. And those times we say, God, stay away from me. I want to control my own destiny. See, that's a small God when we, when we tell God to stay away. But let me give you the counterpoint for this morning. A bigger God. What does it mean? 
And here's how I frame it. We have a heavenly father who pursues us when he determines it's needed. You see those times, stay away. But I'll tell you what, we have a big God who is willing to pursue us at the right time. Now, there are times, as we've gone even some over some of the stuff in the past couple weeks here, sometimes God steps back and he waits. And he even lets us suffer in some of the things that are going on in our lives. But there are times here where he goes, it's the right time now, and I am going to pursue you. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 32 in your Bibles. It's a picture of God pursuing someone. Now, I don't have a lot of time to go over the whole context, but the context here is that Jacob, this is the story of Jacob. And Jacob's such an interesting character in that he's running away from his father-in-law. And he's gonna, he realizes in going to Canaan that he's going to come across his brother Esau. And I don't know if you remember the story, but Jacob had swindled his brother out of kind of the birthright and some of the inheritance that, that Esau was supposed to have. But when you dig into Esau and or Jacob and who he was, I want to put some words on the screen that really describe his character. He was a swindler. He was a conniver. He was a backroom deal man. He was a charlatan. He was an unscrupulous salesman. That's Jacob's reputation at this time. He even manipulated his father-in-law. But look at chapter 32, verse 1. He's heading to the land of Canaan, and Jacob started on his way again, and angels of the God came to meet him. And when Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, This is God's camp, so he named the place Mahanaim. Now, just stop there a moment. What just happened? God broke into his life. And he was going to intervene in Jacob's life here. And the timing was just right for God to work. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Then Jacob sent the messengers ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom. And he told them, Give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I have been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform my, my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, We met your brother Esau, and he's already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. And Jacob was terrified at the news. He divided his household along with the flocks and the herds and the camels into two groups, and he thought, if Esau meets one group and attacks it, perhaps the other group can escape. See, you feel him, just feeling the pressure? And what do people do when the pressure's on? How about, let's pray. Verse 9, then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. 
I am not worthy of all of the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned and nothing except a walking stick, and now my household filled with two large camps. Oh Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he's coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me, I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Now I, I got to stop here because you understand, this wasn't a real legitimate prayer. This was manipulating God. It was really false humility. What's happening? My bigger, badder brother, he's coming to get me. But in this encounter, in one sense, he's really trying to manipulate God, and it's still his self-reliance and staying in control here. Save me and I'll serve you. You promise, God, get me out of this. Now understand, it's been about 20 years since Esau and Jacob have seen each other. And he has no clue, and he's assuming again, that Esau was out to get him, pay him back. But there is an application issue here, I think, for us. And it's the way we pray. And let me, for your notes, I said it this way. Sometimes, our prayers are used for my will be done. Not thy will. God, I want my will to be done. And we don't pray with an open hand. Rather, we affirm what we want. And that, God, you have to rescue me. You promised. You promised. Let me keep reading here, verse 13. Jacob stayed where he was for the night. Then he selected these gifts from his possessions to present to his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, uh, 20 rams, 30 female cap camels, 40 bulls, 10 bulls, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He divided these animals into herds and assigned each to different servants. Then he told his servants, go ahead of me with the animals but keep some distance in between the herds. Now, do you notice one thing? Just stop here for a moment. Do you notice something here? Who did he send out first? Wasn't him? He's in the back. If they attack and take the first group, maybe the second group can get away, and I'm in back of the second group, and guess what? I can run. He's a pretty clever guy here. You catch that? This really wasn't about trusting God. And we're going to skip some verses here, but 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 the sense where this is a bribery, this is flattery to try to kind of win the favor of his brother that he assumed that was going to kill him. In one sense, he was really a coward, but he was sure self-reliant. But let me jump to verse 21 here. I'm going to actually use the ESV. New Living didn't have a couple words in it. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, I'm not sure what was going through in his head, but I think it was something like this. Tomorrow, ooh, tomorrow's D-Day. We're going to figure out if I'm going to be destroyed or not. 
And I suspect that he was not sleeping all that well that night. And there was just a little bit worry going on. And, and look what he does during the night. Verse 22, the same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and he crossed the ford of, of Jabuk and he took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So he moves his family away. Now understand, it really doesn't say why. Okay, But when you consider his character right now, his manipulation, his self-reliance. What he's doing is he's distancing his family from himself. And in essence, if, if his brother were to come and attack him, where would the brother go after? The campfires, the groups of people out there. There's they're gathering of people, they would assume that he was there. So he puts them across the stream. He kind of stays hidden in case Esau comes and attacks during the middle of the night. But look at verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. No people around. No wives, no children, no interruptions. And I can imagine what was going through his mind. Fear. And I wonder, did he ever? was he ever thinking back of going... You know, it really started when I stole my brother's birthright 20 years earlier. Would he ever gone back there and go, boy, I shouldn't have done that? I don't know. But I don't think he was, I don't think he did real well in those early parts of the night after dark. But look at, continue on in verse 24. Out of the dark, and a man comes to him and he wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. A man shows up and begins to have this wrestling match with him. And look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip. And Jacob's hip was, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And you go, just think of the pain that he was going through at that point. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. I'm done wrestling with you. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now there's a hint here, maybe more than a hint, that Jacob understood who he was wrestling. He knew that this wasn't some out-of-the-blue guy that just showed up some night. Because that man would have just touched his hip and all of a sudden the hip would have popped out. And then Jacob holds on to this man for dear life maybe fearing for what he was going to do next. But all of a sudden, out of this, because he understood there's something different about this guy, he goes, would you bless me? Would you give me a blessing? You see, that's why Jacob understood there was no ordinary person here. I think he began to understand, this, is, this was God, this was the Lord. And I think he, he actually understood this. This guy could have whipped me anytime he wanted to. I'm just, he's toying with me. So, so he engages this, the Lord. And look at verse 27. And he said to him, what is your name? Well, maybe that wouldn't have been the reflection. It would have been, Jacob, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, he asked his name. He already knew it. 
So what's happening here? If you don't know this, the word Jacob means heel grabber, holder of the heel. Remember the picture of his twin? He was holding the heel coming out of the womb. But what was it signifying is that the Lord knew that he was a manipulator. He was one who takes from everyone, the man who trusts no one, that he was a self-reliant man. And in one sense, what, what God was doing here, he was looking for a bit of a confession from Jacob. Jacob, who are you? I'm the heel holder, the manipulator. See, Jacob had to acknowledge, I think, the truth about himself. Before really God could make him into a new man, Jacob had to own his own name and his reputation. And remember back then, names meant so much more than they do today. But look how it continues in verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God's face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. God broke through in Jacob's life. See, what just happened? This was about God's timing. This was about the Lord breaking through at the exact moment that he wanted to break through. And what does he do? He actually ends up blessing him. Now, that blessing, by the way, isn't described. Could it have been the new name? Maybe. Maybe healing the hip. Uh, did, you know, did it change? Was the blessing Esau's attitude during the night all of going from I'm going to kill you to oh, I miss my brother? Could that have been it? Could have been. You know, maybe it was the limp that he had to now walk with. Do you remember? <laughs> One author said this. He, was, he moved from living crooked to walking crooked, and that was the blessing. We really don't know what it is, but it was immediate. It was immediate. But there, folks, there's an application here for us. That we have a big God and he pursues us. And he determines when it's best. And the issue for your notes, I said it this way. When we encounter God on his terms, on his terms, God will always work. He's not going to let it go. And when God runs us down sometimes, he wants to work and work well. So God uses our journey to reveal himself just at the right time, just at the moment, and he actually can bless us. And it could be completely undeserved. Do you understand this act, this blessing, as, as the Lord blessed Jacob, he didn't deserve it. It was purely the grace of God. It was grace but let me give you one more application. Just as a thought of this at the end of the week, but remember the prayer that he prayed? It was kind of an act of actually selfishness and for wrong reasons. Look at the application there. Our Heavenly Father can actually answer our prayers in spite of our self-reliance and poor motives. 
I go, that is the grace of God. See, there's a, we think that there's this perfection. We've got to come to him when we come to him and pray and go, no, he still he wants us to come and pray, even, even at those times when we're self-reliant. And God can intervene and work, and he gives his grace. But here's how we need to end. Maybe there are lives even in this room that need an intervention by God. And I would say this, don't fear it. Embrace it. See, Jacob is the example. He finally started this journey of giving up his self-reliance. And it was at this place, he kind of came to the end of all his resources. He just couldn't do it any longer. And he started this journey of, you know, started with manipulation and deceit, and he finally changes, he's given a new name, and he begins to experience the strength and the power which comes from God himself. He was experiencing God. Something began to change profoundly in Jacob, even with a new name. But what if... What if this morning that God in this room here is asking people, what is your name? What's your name? And maybe some of you would have to say this, my name is bitterness. And can I say that you probably won't be healed unless you say it? Maybe you say, my name is greed. And you just need to be honest with God and say it to him. Or maybe your name is deception. Or your name is unfaithfulness. Or maybe your name is self-reliance. You've so relied on yourself. And you've been quick and clever. But God is wanting to break through and rid you of self-reliance and he wants you to move toward dependence on him. See, he can break through anytime he wants, but we can invite him as well into our lives. So God wants to change us. And he pursues us just like he pursued Jacob And what's the spirit in that that he really is after? I found this verse, uh, read it, and I thought this fit so well. Psalm 51, look at this verse. Here's what God wants, I think, from us today. And here's an act of worship. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise See, he invites us to bow before him and for our lives. We're all sinners. But, but he keeps inviting us and saying, come to me. I can change you. Because of my immeasurable love for you. I, I love those last two songs because that's why he interrupts our lives, because he loves us. And he really cares about us. And he really wants our best interests and to be used by for himself. So my encouragement to you, taste and see if he's good. And just maybe, as you bow before him, he might give you a new name. A new name.
Let's stand and pray.